A massive lightning strike ignited a huge fire in Cuba on August 5th. The fire is still burning. At the same time, Cuba is suffering from 243 additional coercive measures imposed by Donald Trump on the already existing U.S. blockade of Cuba. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Ryan Becker. Today, we'll be talking again to Manolo De Los Santos. Manolo is a central organizer of the Let Cuba Live campaign. He's also the executive director of the People's Forum in New York City. Manolo, welcome. It's a pleasure to be back with you. A grave moment for Cuba, huge fire. Why is it burning? Why is it burning so long? And let's talk about it in the context of the Trump-imposed economic measures, which we can now call the Trump-Biden economic coercive measures because, in fact, the Biden administration has stayed with Donald Trump's policy, not Barack Obama's policy, even though Joe Biden had been vice president during the two terms of Barack Obama. Anyway, let's fill the audience in about the fire, what caused it, why it's so big, and its impact. Well, right now we're looking at two disasters. One is a natural disaster, which is the fact that this lightning hit this important oil storage facility that Cuba has in the province of Matanzas, which is about 65 miles east of Havana. It's one of its most recent actual facilities. Many people have been saying that it's had aging infrastructure, and that's the reason why the fire started in the first place. But it was a natural disaster. And the impact of it was felt immediately. Firstly, because the fire extended itself past not just the first tank, but reached up to burning four tanks of the eight on the site. And the fire could be seen for miles in distance. The fumes were arriving even easter towards Havana. But there's a bigger disaster, and that is the sanctions themselves. The 243 measures that you mentioned before that were put in place by the Trump administration, which were basically designed on top of the already existing U.S. blockade, to finish asphyxiating the Cuban people, to strangle them so much that they would not be able to respond in circumstances like now to marshal their available resources, to receive aid, not just from the U.S., but even from other countries and people in solidarity around the world. The fact that Cuba is on the state sponsors of terrorism list limits greatly its ability to maneuver and face a type of disaster like it is with the fire right now. So we're looking again, a natural disaster and what I would call a man-made disaster, which is what the Trump administration began, but that ultimately Biden already two years into his administration or more has not just continued, but in many ways has justified under the logic that Cuba continues to be a dictatorship, that it doesn't meet the standards of democracy according to what Washington demands and requires create a situation that's highly unfavorable for the Cuban people. I want to talk about the efforts by a large number of organizations and people of conscience, people who want to think of Cuba as a neighbor to the United States rather than an endless Cold War adversary. You've been a central organizer in the Let Cuba Live campaign. There's a letter going to Biden demanding, under these circumstances, that the U.S. government change policy. Well, when the Let Cuba Live campaign started a little bit over a year ago, in July of 2021, it was in a moment when the COVID pandemic was reaching a high point in Cuba, was reaching a peak in Cuba. Cuba was being prevented from accessing syringes. Electricity shortages and outages were taking place almost daily in the middle of a hot summer. And naturally, people came out to protest. And in that moment, initially, we raise a demand to President Biden. It's inhumane, it's cruel, it has no logic in this point in history 
to continue to wage this all-out war against Cuba when it's facing such an adverse situation. The U.S. gains nothing. Fast forward a year, we're seeing a similar situation. Cuba has had to face multiple periods of crisis. Right now, with this fire, it still continues to face a major energy crisis. And the U.S., in slight of this fire, can only offer its condolences and what it calls technical advice, which turned out to be a phone call, which the Cubans appreciated, but a simple phone call from an entity in the United States to the Cuban fire department recommending how to deal with this fire. But it's the reality of literally seeing your neighbor's house on fire and you just stand by and watch. You do not feel the humanity to even offer more serious material aid, but then you go out of your way to prevent your neighbor from actually having access to the material goods, water, supplies, experts to actually stem that fire. It's shameful that the U.S. can still engage in this type of what it calls politics, but that are actually just other forms of aggression, of violence against the Cuban people. And we've gathered people of consciousness across the United States, the Answer Coalition, Code Pink, Pastors for Peace, and other organizations across the country that really believe that we have to push on the administration, the Biden administration, to take a more serious look at what is it actually doing in regards to Cuba. We know that the U.S. government has had a vitriolic hate of everything that Cuba stands for for the past 60 years. But the U.S. has to move beyond that. It makes no sense in this point in history for the U.S. government to continue this evil policy. And more than that, we've been able to gather intellectuals, artists, philosophers, people of good in this country, Roger Waters, Noam Chomsky, Vijay Prashad, Judith Butler, Roxanne Dunbar-Tis, and others who really believe that now is the time for this change to happen. Now is the time for these 243 sanctions measures to be reassessed. It now is the time to remove Cuba off the state sponsors of terrorism list because we are literally not just not helping Cuba, but we are tying their hands behind their backs. In a way, it's sort of like you look at your neighbor's house and the house is on fire. And as you pointed out, the human reaction is you, you run next door. You do something to help. You try to extinguish the flames. Maybe you go into a burning building, not because you thought of yourself as a hero before the fire. It's just the human, the human reaction to crisis and to tragedy, especially one that's still unfolding. So here we have a fire and Cuba's already suffering from all of these sanctions. And the Cuban people need electricity. They need air conditioning. It's hot in the summertime. Hurricane season is about to begin. And here you have the U.S. government sort of standing like the neighbor next door, arms folded and, and taking the attitude, oh, good. Oh, good. I'm glad my neighbor's house is on fire. I don't like my neighbor. Too bad if they have kids in the house. Too bad if there's other people who are going to die. My main goal is to burn that house down because I, I dislike my neighbor. And that's the logic, really, of the U.S. not doing anything right now. And it's informed because the American political foreign policy calculation is, in fact, against human nature. It's anti-human. It's anti-democratic. Like, what is it about Cuba and the Cuban Revolution that deserves such wrath, such animus, such hostility, such sort of a spirit of revenge against the people who wanted to be free? Anyway, it's kind of mind-boggling if you step back away from American propaganda and just put it in a human lens. Well, the wrath that's been unleashed on Cuba and that's been continued even in these dire moments for the Cuban people, I think is a sign also of the fact that the gamble that the U.S. government keeps playing at is that all of this will lead to an uprising against mm -hmm. the Cuban revolution. That all of this will push the Cuban people to the point where they have no other option for their survival than to overthrow their socialist project, which is a far-fetched idea and hasn't worked in 62 years of revolution in Cuba. I think it's a moment for the U.S. government to reassess. But we also have to think that ultimately what the Cuban people are paying for, the price that they're paying for with these sanctions, with the blockade, with the continued aggression of the U.S. government, is the price for their independence. 
That is what the U.S. government ultimately is the most angry about when it looks at Cuba. Yes, it could maybe be bothered about the fact that Cuba has healthcare and education for its people, but ultimately it's angry to this day of the fact that Cuba has its independent government and a people united with it that have determined their own path of development beyond the interests of the United States. That when it comes to a series of major affairs in the world, Cuba simply does not align itself with the U.S. on the basis of receiving aid or funding from the U.S. government. It doesn't beg ever for U.S. aid, even in these moments. Mm. I mean, Cuba made a request for international aid in this period. And countries like Venezuela, many others around the world, immediately responded. There are countries like Mexico that didn't even wait for Cuba to make a request and immediately sent aid and some of its best specialists in dealing with fires of this nature. Mm. The request was there, but Cuba was never going to bend on its knees and ask the great U.S. empire to please help us in the situation. I think there has to be clarity that ultimately Cuba continues to stand tall. It's an independent nation. It values its sovereignty over all else. Well, let me pursue that theme with you a little bit because, you know, there's the element of ideology in the contest between the U.S. and Cuba, the ideology of capitalism versus socialism. And this is a dominant strain in the Cold War, or at least in American Cold War propaganda. But if you look at what actually evolved in terms of U.S. hostility towards Cuba, it happens and takes place during the Eisenhower administration prior to the time when Cuba has announced that it's going on a socialist path, prior to the time that Cuba has made an alliance with the Soviet Union. It's, in fact, at the same time that Fidel visits Wall Street. Literally, he's here. Fidel Castro on Wall Street. Many, many people might be shocked. Yeah, but Fidel came. He took off his fatigues. He wore a suit. He spoke on Wall Street. And at that moment, when he's coming and obviously saying, we want to do business with you, we want to have a normal relationship with you, in the White House, under Eisenhower, they begin plotting to kill Castro. They begin plotting to overthrow the Cuban Revolution. So it's clearly not yet about socialism. Maybe it's conflating with the Cold War, but they don't like Fidel and they don't like the Cuban Revolution because up until that moment, Cuba was, in essence, not a direct colony, but a virtual colony of America. And then you think about the other countries in the Caribbean. You think about Puerto Rico, or before that, Haiti, when it had its revolution against France. And the way France tortured Haiti, I mean, Toussaint Louverture and Dessalines were not communists. This was before the advent of scientific socialism, but they dared to be free people. They wanted to be free people, and so they were punished in many of the same ways that Cuba's being punished today. Well, you know, there's the interesting history of Fidel's first trip to the U.S. representing the Cuban government, the Cuban revolution, barely in its infancy. Eisenhower refuses to receive or welcome Fidel in the White House. So the person who meets with him is, at that time, Vice President Nixon, who, you know, interviews with Fidel, and Fidel doesn't come as is the tradition of Latin American presidents to this day to simply show up with a list of, please, we beg you to fund this project and to fund that other thing. Fidel comes with a position of dignity and says, this is the state of our country. We want to develop and we want to be on equal terms with the United States. We want you to negotiate and dialogue with us on the basis of defending our sovereignty never sacrificing our sovereignty in the interest of U.S. corporations. At this point, Cuba isn't even talking about nationalizations. Mm -hmm. But it's seeking business and trade on equal terms. Nixon's response in the notes that are preserved to this day are, he must be a communist. He must be a communist if he's asking, essentially, to build another path of development that isn't that of the U.S. and it's ever-hungry capitalist corporations. So I think this is important for people to understand, especially people who want to have a different kind of foreign policy, who, let's call it a democratic foreign policy. Call it a policy of, a foreign policy based on respect or equality. The United States is a very big country, a powerful country, the biggest economy in the world, certainly the biggest military in the world. 
Cuba's an island nation, 90 miles from the United States, 13, 14 million people, a country that's trying to overcome poverty and underdevelopment from the colonial era and in the context of a blockade. And even today, the U.S. can't bring itself to say, look, we're going to treat Cuba as a neighbor. We're going to treat you as an equal. Or even if they don't think of them as equals, like pretend to be equals. And, you know, I don't think anything has really shifted from the point of view of policymakers. But President Barack Obama did make a change in the policy. Maybe not the strategic goal. I mean, perhaps Obama's strategic goal was the same as Reagan's or Eisenhower's to get rid of the Cuban Revolution. But Obama, when he opened the embassy or allowed the embassies to be opened in Havana and in Washington, D.C., the beginning of a thaw in relations with Cuba, and those embassies had been closed for 54 years, he made the argument that the blockade isn't working. It's not doing what the U.S. wanted it to do. And it's not isolating Cuba. It's isolating the United States. And so he said, if this old policy, 54-year-old policy doesn't work, let's try a new policy. Then Trump comes in and crushes that policy. Biden goes along with Trump instead of Obama. Now, you were one of the organizers of the People's Summit for Democracy in Los Angeles. I was there. Many people came. People came from all over the United States, all over the Western Hemisphere, and actually from all over the world. And it was very interesting because Biden had the same approach to the summit that is typical of the thinking of U.S. policymakers before Obama declared that the, quote, policy isn't working, which he said, look, we're going to isolate Cuba. They can't come to the summit. Venezuela can't come to the summit. Nicaragua, you're not invited either. Anybody who wants to be independent, you can't come. But instead, the rest of the hemisphere, at least big parts of it, said, well, if they're not coming, we're not coming, including Mexico, including the Caribbean. And it, the reason I'm raising this, Manolo, is that Obama wasn't wrong in his geostrategic calculation. The blockade is succeeding, yes, in imposing misery and suffering for Cuba because Cuba needs to be interactive with the world. But it's not succeeding in overthrowing the Cuban Revolution and it's not succeeding because the U.S. is actually isolated in the Western Hemisphere as it pursues this policy of animus and hostility towards Cuba. In other words, Obama was right. Trump and Biden have this old thinking, and they're not right. I mean, there's several elements of what you say that I think are important to keep pounding on. One is that the U.S. government's strategic goal, going back not to 1962, 1961, going back to 1959, has been that the Cuban government is a nuisance and has to be overthrown one way or the other. That has not changed. And I don't think that will change anytime soon. Obama was, in many ways, smart enough to recognize that to further advance that strategic goal, the tactic of maintaining full-on open aggressiveness towards Cuba was backfiring. And it was backfiring because Cuba actually was not isolated. Cuba was deeply tied and connected to the rest of the third world, was building positive relations with Europe. But more importantly, it was the U.S. that was being isolated in Latin America for maintaining these policies. When Trump comes in with the spirit of make America great again, which I think is not just an idea in terms of making the domestic project of the United States great. It's also about reinforcing the U.S. imperialist project abroad. Mm -hmm. The idea really was that they thought in the White House at this point, all the worst of the American hawks and liberals who also are hawks in pure form really believe that Cuba was going to be put against the ropes if they perfected and sort of cut out all the loopholes that might have existed in the blockade previously. That's what these 243 sanctions are. And that comes from Trump, and now Biden keeps and, them. And Biden has continued them. In a way, Biden can't add any more sanctions to them because Trump perfected, in many ways, the blockade. There's not much more to sanction after what Trump did. And Biden erroneously, again, believes that Cuba's against the ropes. The pandemic, the lack of remittances, the electricity shortages, Major accidents, the Hotel Saratoga exploding a few months back, 
this question now of the fire matanzas, they really think that they are going to be able to drive a wedge between the leadership of the country, the government of the people, and the people themselves. And that all this situation of crisis, with enough pressure from the outside, particularly from the U.S. government, its media projects, its social media labs in Southern Florida, are going to be enough to create the right explosion, which they hope would be bigger than July 11th last year. But I say it's erroneous because they haven't fully understood. And I would say not just Biden, not just Trump, but the U.S. governments in the past six decades have not understood exactly the psyche of the Cuban people. The fact that the Cuban people, going back hundreds of years, have consistently been fighting for their freedom. It's been a nation whose sense of identity was built around the struggle for its liberation. When people talk about the Cuban Revolution, they're not referring to a project that started in 1959. Mm. They're talking about a project that started with Atuey, the indigenous leader who refused to accept the grace and the heavens of the Spanish colonizer. They're talking about the enslaved black people in Cuba who fought consistently over time against all forms of slavery and domination on the island. They're talking about the generations of freedom fighters who fought both against the Spanish and the U.S. invaders on multiple accounts. This is very present in Cuban history and the culture of the Cuban people today. I don't see any chance of the Cuban people giving up on their project of independence, of sovereignty, of liberation. And further to say, the U.S. is going to have to challenge. Because if, if in many ways, the blockade as a legal construct of tightening and screwing with the lives of the Cuban people is in many ways successful, the U.S., as it proved with the Summit of the Americas, is further isolating itself in the international arena with these policies. Look at what's happening in Latin America. There's a tide returning of progressive governments in the region, all who stand with Cuba. When Gustavo Petro was inaugurated this Sunday, what was the first delegation that he met with, that he welcomed in the palace, the presidential palace? It was a Cuban foreign minister. And we're talking Colombia. Colombia, the beachhead of U.S. imperialism in the region, welcomes the Cuban foreign minister with full honors and signifies the level of solidarity that this new government stands with in Cuba and the sense of gratitude it feels because Cuba has been consistently a peace guarantor in its processes of negotiations with the guerrilla forces in Colombia, which again confirms Cuba has never been a state sponsor of terrorism. On the contrary, Cuba has been an exporter of peace. It's been an exporter of health. It has been an interested party in resolving multiple armed conflicts around the world, particularly in Latin America. I want to come back and discuss a little bit more for our audience what the state sponsor of terrorism list is, what its impact is. It's a real tool, a real weapon of imperialism. I want to talk about that. But before we do, I want to stick with where we are at the moment, Manolo, because the impact of Cuba on Latin America and the impact of Latin America on Cuba. It is a continent-wide struggle for independence, for freedom, for sovereignty, against racism on all fronts. It's hemispheric. And when you think about the impact of this small country, I mean, it's an island country. It's not huge. But the Cuban Revolution succeeds in spite of Operation Mongoose, which was a terrorist operation by the U.S. If people go to Wikipedia, which I don't recommend people normally go to Wikipedia, but go there and read Operation Mongoose about how the U.S., carried out, and it says it explicitly, was a multifaceted, multi-tiered terrorist operation by all of the U.S. intelligence services and the military to destroy the Cuban revolution for daring to become free people. They did that, and Cuba survived. Cuba survived that assault, the Bay of Pigs invasion, April 1961. They survived, and that flame of liberation, of independence, of sovereignty, started to spread just as American imperialism feared it would spread. And it went to Chile and went to Argentina. It went to Brazil. It went to Bolivia, to Ecuador, to Uruguay, everywhere. 
everywhere. The Cuban Revolution, even though it was small, it didn't export revolution per se. Yes, Che made a trip to Bolivia. Yes, they wanted hemispheric independence and you know unity of the oppressed. But it was the ideas of the Cuban Revolution, a victorious revolution in the Western Hemisphere. The way Haiti changed the 19th century, Cuba changed the 20th century. So all over Latin America, people sort of saw Cuba as the beacon. And that hasn't changed. That hasn't changed. I mean, Cuba could go from being with the aid of the Soviet camp, Soviet assistance, Soviet trade, an affluent country by Caribbean standards to having very difficult, hard times economically, very hard times. Nobody denies that, but still a beacon. For most Latin American people, for the great majorities of the Latin American people and its governments, Cuba has always been the voice of dignity. In moments when our own governments couldn't say what they needed to say in the face of the U.S. empire, Cuba would speak. Many governments wish they had the dignity that Cuba's government had to defend its independence, but actively seek out projects of development that didn't mean sacrificing their own population. I mean, many people will talk about the special period, the period of great economic crisis after the fall of the Soviet Union in Cuba, but very few people talk about the great economic crisis that Latin America was going through in this period, mm. result of the Washington consensus. And while all of Latin America was facing major crisis, Cuba, despite all these issues and all these contradictions and all these challenges it was facing, never sacrificed its population. The special period didn't mean neoliberal reforms. It didn't mean the sacking of the state. It didn't mean privatizing public goods and entities, which was the case in Latin America. And if there's a change in the prospects of the Latin American people today, in part we can say it's because the people's movements and organizations have fought it to be different. But it's also because of these neoliberal formulas and recipes that were imposed by the U.S. empire on our people. They are the real cooks, the chefs responsible for what is happening in Latin America today. More people are daring to share the dignity of Cuba. More people are willing to, in their own ways, shape or forms. I don't think Cuba wants it to be a homogeneous continent where everyone speaks like Cuba. But the reality is that more and more people are sharing the dignity and in their own ways speaking to defend their people against what is a new onslaught of the Biden administration under a new discourse about democracy, defending democracy, defending human rights, but which is devoid of any real substance. Because the U.S. continues to see, and Biden has reaffirmed it, they continue to see us as their backyard. Latin America serves no other purpose but to be a point of extraction for raw materials and for cheap labor for the United States empire. The revolution in 1959 and its continued success in the 60s and 70s was not only impactful for Latin America, it had a huge impact on the black civil rights movement in the United States or what became the black liberation movement or both. I mean, when Fidel came in the early years after the revolution, he ended up in Harlem. I mean, no head of state was staying in Harlem. Hotel Teresa. Hotel Teresa. He met with Malcolm X. He met with other leaders in the black movement. Robert Williams, who you know successfully defended his community in North Carolina under the aegis of the Deacons of Defense and the NAACP in North Carolina. When he was being hunted down by the United States, he could go to Cuba. Cuba had this bond with the black civil rights struggle for equality, the black freedom struggle. And, you know, when you think about how this has continued, you, you know, Cuba's in a path of hurricanes every year. Nothing, nothing Cuba does is going to change that. So is New Orleans. And you saw in 2005, Hurricane Katrina wiped out a big part of the black community in New Orleans. And there's Cuba ready to send doctors to help the people in New Orleans. But the difference between the Ninth Ward and New Orleans New Orleans in general, and Cuba when it comes to hurricanes, is when the hurricane devastated those communities, those communities didn't come back, many of them. The developers came. They took their homes. And when you think about what happens with Cuba, yes, Cuba has a scarcity of resources. 
but there's no hurricane that's going to take somebody's home from them. You know, that doesn't happen. That's the difference between having a system based on neoliberal capitalism that is foundationally harmful to the black community, foundationally harmful to working class and poor communities, where you can see with the Cuban government, the scarcities of goods is real because of the blockade, but the social values, the social model, the social organization is actually for the people. I mean, there's so much to talk about here because I think I always like to refer back to the historical relationship between Cuba and the black community in the United States, which precedes the Cuban Revolution. There's a reason why there are generations of black men who carry the name Maceo mm. in honor of the black Cuban general, Antonio Maceo, who, who fought off the Spanish colonialist. There's so many stories that could be shared, but it's a continuing history. It's not a history that's died or been killed because Cuba continues to hold very dear to its existence, to its tradition of struggle, a sense of internationalism that sees itself deeply connected to the people of the United States, and in particularly the black masses of the United States. In facing all the challenges that Cuba faces, it has very little advantages. Like you said, it can't change its geographic location. It will always be, Cuban joke about it, they will be continuously the airport of all hurricanes. They cannot change dramatically their economic conditions at this point because of the U.S. blockade. The country has little resources and even less so now. But Cuba has one major advantage that has two elements for me. One, that it has a leadership that speaks clearly and honestly to the people consistently about what is happening. They don't hide anything from the people. They speak one-on-one -on -one to the people. We saw it with the fact that the president, just a couple of hours after the fire started in Matanzas on Friday night, was already in Matanzas, talking with the firefighters, talking with the civil defense, talking with the first-line responders, and not sort of coming in to take over and say this is what needs to be done, but to dialogue with them and actually figure out a collective plan to confront the fires. But they have a second element, which is of high value to the Cuban people, which is their level of organization. They have organization at all levels, from the black neighborhood committees called the Committees in Defense of the Revolution to their civil defense. The people are organized. Everyday people in Cuba have a level of responsibility, not over their own lives, but with the lives of their communities to be able to respond to everything from natural disasters that take place, like hurricanes and fires, but to even confront the issues of quality of life and political organization in their neighborhoods. This is remarkable about Cuba. Where else can we talk about a high degree of unity and participation in the daily political life of a country? How many Americans in the United States can say that they actually can participate in a process of saving their own lives and saving their own communities from the threat of both natural disasters, hurricanes that affect the United States regularly, but also the economic disasters that go cut out the lives of close to 140 million people who lived daily at the risk of falling deeper into poverty, falling deeper into misery. You know, I talked to Ricardo Alarcón, who tragically, well, lamentably, certainly passed away recently. He was at one time the Cuban ambassador to the United Nations. I talked to him about Hurricane Katrina. And at that point, a lot of people were bashing Bush, understandably, because of the mishandling of it. And he made the point that, you know, it's easy in the United States, and everyone does, play the blame game. You can point your finger at Bush or the head of FEMA at that time for mismanagement. He said, but, you know, the real issue in America is you're organized differently than we're organized. He said, when a hurricane comes, I know where I'm going, and I know how I'm going to get there, and I know how my kids are going to get there, and I know how my grandkids are going to get there. And they all know exactly how each of us is going to, you know, go to where we need to go. Where in the United States, what you say, what your government says is that here comes a hurricane, people in New Orleans, evacuate. And for the poor who don't have a car, the people who may not have gas, they have nowhere to go, they can't afford a motel room. 
the announcement of an evacuation is really an announcement about for those who are privileged enough or well-to-do enough to leave because they have personal means, personal means, not societal responsibilities towards the population, they can escape while others can't. And I thought that was a good point. And it speaks to what you're saying, that you can have a society that's scarce in resources, but if it's premised on human values and human values, I mean, all of us, we're a family. Human beings are a family. We couldn't have survived individually. We can only survive socially. That's how we have survived. That's how we've evolved. Socialism, in a way, is taking the best of the human family's natural tendencies of social support and building a society-wide organization around it and fortifying those values, unlike the dog-eat-dog capitalist values where, like, all I care about is my money, all I care about is my property, which is the, the inculcation of values. So let's just talk a little bit about how organization and values go hand in hand. It's not simply the Cubans have read the right books. It's, it's a whole way society is organized. Well, it's definitely about the organization of society. And it's a long-term project. And when I think about what this project is, I call it consistently the Cuban Socialist Project. It's been a project of reshaping what are the values that are most important to society. And they're not just inherent to socialism. I think these are some of the values that are, have accompanied human beings for centuries, for a long time. The sense of community, the sense of protecting our families, the sense of our lives are worth more than monetary, financial, or commodities. I think what's been particularly different about the Cuban experience is that they have made these values, if we could summarize them in the sense of solidarity, they've turned solidarity into a permanent school of development for the Cuban people. And part of that has been internationalism. Fidel Castro often referred and said, if we don't teach people to fight for others, they will never be able to fight for themselves. And the biggest school was the fact that Thousands of Cubans, at this point, hundreds of thousands of Cubans, have participated in medical missions, educational missions, responses to natural disasters across the third world. And then most recently, in the case of the COVID-19 pandemic, even in the heart of Europe, mm -hmm. there were Cuban medical brigades operating to defend human life against corporate greed and profit. This has prepared the Cuban people today in the light of this fire, to deal with how do we take care of humanity? How do we center the human being in our response to a natural disaster, which in many other places around the world would only stoke individualism, would only stoke greed? You know, even before the president, Diaz Canel, arrived at the site of the fire, the community had already been evacuated. Mm. And the evacuation response, like you were, I think, going at before, wasn't just a simple order, move out of this area. Already a plan had been set up at the university, the local university, to receive people who had been evacuated. Over 100 people were evacuated from the areas right next to the fire. But what was waiting for them at the university? It wasn't just food and a place to sleep. But the Cubans had organized mental health workers mm. to deal with the trauma of having to leave your home. They had arts brigades and cultural workers present in the university to work with the children and work with their families. A whole holistic, integral approach had been assumed to actually say, we have to take care of our people. And the Cubans have developed this into an instinct. Overnight, from Friday 5th to Saturday, August the 6th, hundreds of people began to volunteer blood, knowing that many Vern victims would need it. The Cuban government didn't have to call for it. It's an instinct of solidarity that has been developed over many years of struggle. And that's what's kept them afloat as a society. If they didn't have this solidarity, how would they be able to face the world's biggest empire that is consistently finding ways to subvert, to go against, to overthrow the Cuban project? Yeah, so important. Let's talk about terrorism. I mentioned before Operation Mongoose. That was a terrorist operation by the CIA, by the Pentagon. 
And it was not the only one. They continued. The attempts to assassinate Fidel were not the only, that's what we hear more about. But bombings of Cuba, burning of agricultural fields, I mean, real terrorism and, and the CIA consciously organized terrorist actions. And Cuba has not carried out any sort of terrorist actions against the people of the United States. None, none. But the United States under Donald Trump, Donald J. Trump, put Cuba back on the state sponsor of terrorism list, which shows that the list is BS. In other words, it's purely politics. It's purely politics. It's like the U.S. wants to demonize, isolate, strangle a country, put them on the terrorism list, regardless of the facts about whether they're engaged in terrorism or not. And this is a big problem for Cuba because you have the blockade. The whole world, by the way, for everybody who doesn't know, the whole world at the General Assembly always votes every year with one or two countries' exceptions, the U.S. and maybe Israel at this point, votes to end the U.S. blockade of Cuba. It's basically a crime against humanity. But they already have the blockade, but having Cuba put back on the state sponsor of terrorism list is designed really to make Cuba, Cuban economy scream, in the words of Henry Kissinger, make Cubans scream, make Cubans cry uncle finally, which is what the intention is. Again, let's just talk about what this list means economically for Cuba. Why is it so bad for Cuba? And also, I think as we come together as a people of conscience, progressive people demanding that the end of the blockade happen, demanding that the 243 coercive measures be ended, that Trump's measures be ended. We should start with take Cuba off the state sponsor of terrorism list because one, they're not terrorists. Two, it's designed to kill Cubans, basically. It's a policy of trying to kill Cubans, especially the most vulnerable among those in Cuba. Who authorizes the United States what gives legitimacy and credibility for the United States to designate who is a state sponsor of terrorism and who isn't? In the words of Martin Luther King, what allows the greatest purveyor of violence to determine who are the violent ones? I think we have to question the legality. We have to question the morality and the credibility of the state sponsors of terrorism list. Because it's never been based on any sense of facts or reality, as you've pointed out. In fact, we know that it's fully based on a spirit of vengeance, essentially. Of wanting to further cripple any country that's on it. When Cuba was originally placed on the list in 1982, it was in response to Cuba's participation and support for the national liberation struggles in Southern Africa and Central America. When Cuba was supporting that other so-called terrorist, Nelson Mandela. And he was literally designated as a terrorist by the US government. Yeah. The support of the Cuban people to these necessary developments for human freedom, which we now all recognize as good, was the initial reason why Cuba was placed on this terrorist list. When it's reinstated in 2021, by the Trump administration. What is it signaling at? They had already pushed these 243 sanctions that crippled the Cuban economy, cut off its access to hard currency, to US dollars. But what did this mentioning in the list or this inclusion in the list mean? It's a big notice, not so much to Cuba, but to financial institutions around the world, to all of the world's banks, if you operate with Cuba, if you dare to even send one wire to Cuba, be prepared to be under the full jurisdiction and the full weight of U.S. financial investigations. Meaning the U.S. can essentially stop your bank's operations or highly impede your bank's operations to review whether is there any legitimacy to this one financial transfer or action that your bank is taking in relation to Cuba. And the reality is that most banks in the world simply don't want to deal with it. So somebody wants to sell prescription saline to Cuba for burn victims after the fire. So that company has to think, well, am I going to be now sanctioned 
investigated and then sanctioned by the Treasury Department or the Justice Department. That's what's actually happening. I mean, it's a great hypocrisy. I mean, the U.S. Embassy in Havana makes a statement a day after the fire began stating that, you know, the U.S. law authorizes U.S. entities and organizations to provide aid and relief to Cuba. But how? Can the U.S. Embassy in Havana name one bank in the U.S., one bank in the U.S. that's willing to make transfers to Cuba right now? We have the resources that we want to support with to our Cuban brothers and sisters, to the Cuban churches, to the Cuban Red Cross, to other organizations that are facing this fire right now and are helping people on the ground. But what bank is willing to even take the, the risk of the weight of OFAC, of the State Department, of the Justice Department, and wanting to do transactions with Cuba? And it's not just in the U.S., the list of international banks that are willing to do transactions with Cuba has gone down to the fingers on my hand, on both hands. It's incredibly difficult right now. And it's all part of an intentional project of the United States government to leave Cuba with little to no options to survive in today's world. And that is hard enough in the middle of a global energy crisis. It's difficult enough in which a moment in which food prices are going dramatically up, it's difficult enough when we're still living through the COVID-19 pandemic. All of this is an attempt to bring Cuba to its knees. But like I've said before, it's based on an erroneous assumption that the Cuban people somehow want to go back to living on their knees after being able to stand up on their own with their heads held up high with dignity for the past 63 years. Let's talk about, since we've talked about the Cuban people, let's talk about the American people. Let's talk about the people in the United States because millions of people in the United States would prefer, matter of fact, they would enthusiastically prefer to have a change in U.S. policy towards Cuba. They don't feel animus and anger and hostility towards Cuba. Why they, would they? Yeah, they want to help Cuba. And they want to be neighbors with Cuba. They want to learn from Cuba. They'd like to have Cubans come here and for us to be able to go to Cuba and, you know, just have normal neighborly relations. And, you know, one of the things that I want to go back and perhaps we can end Manolo on this, on this let Cuba live campaign, because there are emails out many organizations. I'm also one of the organizers with the answer coalition. We're participating code pink Hotway, many others, IFCO, Pastors for Peace, many organizations that care about Cuba have been doing work with Cuba, trying to build a bridge with Cuba. We're trying to send material aid. We're trying to send medicine and supplies to Cuba, but it's a drop in the bucket, really. I mean, yes, we want to collect medicine and supplies and send them to Cuba. We're doing that right now. But what Cuba needs is not the generosity of friends of Cuba sending medical supplies, it needs to be able to be treated like a normal country, which it is, like be able to trade with other countries in the hemisphere, with the Caribbean, with the United States, with Europe. So in my mind, you know, the American people, the certainly in the black civil rights movement, the women's movement, the anti-war movement, there was a huge support for Cuba in the 1960s and 70s. I think we have to build a new movement for Cuba that understands that while, yes, it's good to send material aid, and we should, and we are, to Cuba, we need a political change. And that can only come about if the people in the United States become political actors. Like, don't sit on the sidelines. Get into operation. Go to your church or your synagogue or your mosque or your school and do something and tell the story about what's happening to Cuba. Expose the fact that the government that speaks in your name is imposing the so-called terrorism list terrorism on Cuba. Like, if we move, if millions of us who care about Cuba move, we can make a change. Anyway, let's just talk about how people can get involved. We can make a change and make big changes, I think. It's only the power of millions of people in this country that could effectively not just lift the sanctions, but actively end the U.S. blockade against Cuba and change foreign policy towards the island. I think there's a great possibility for it. And that's why we've started this Let Cuba Live campaign. It's a broad space where everyone who believes 
that the Cubans have a right to live with dignity, with independence, with sovereignty, can join in and participate. And we're not determining only one way of organizing or pushing in this moment. Like you said, we are gathering funds to send aid to Cuba. We believe it's important to show a physical and material demonstration of our love for the Cuban people. We're doing that. And we're helping different groups across the country to achieve that aim. But we also want to raise our voices as high and loudly as we can because the Cuban people, that's what they need the most from us right now. The greatest generosity that the American people can show to the people of Cuba is the end of the U.S. blockade. None of what we do will dramatically alter the reality of the Cuban people unless the blockade changes. As long as we continue to put our feet on the Cuban people, one glass of water will not be enough to quench their real thirst. And I think that's a real possibility that we have now as people are waking up and seeing the realities of Biden's summit of exclusion, the defeat he received because he was not just excluding the Cuban people or the Venezuelan people, or the Nicaraguan people, he was excluding the American people from the conversation. I think we are in a moment where we can rebuild a new conversation of the American people with the peoples of this continent in defense of Cuba, in defense of a real friendship, of the real meaning of solidarity, of the real meaning of what it means to be neighbors. All right, and for those watching or listening, letcubalive.info. .info, letcubalive.info. Manolo, thank you so much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.